Hi there, welcome to or welcome back to the Shift Control Podcast. My name is Paul McAnallen. Thanks for joining me on this episode, which is episode 18 of the 2020 series. Um, before giving you the heads up on this podcast, I uh, just wanted to um, thank people for their feedback on the last episode specifically. The last two, actually, um, feedback from the conversation with Kevin Young has been really, really strong. Um, Kevin and I had a really interesting conversation on a bunch of stuff, including compassionate inquiry, and that seems to have resonated with a few of you um, through uh, connections that I've had and touch points that have been made with me and Kevin also. So thanks for your your interaction with that. The the second um, or the last podcast rather was with Paul Creighton from AES Global, and again that. Um, had resonated with quite a few people uh, about areas of culture um, but also areas of mindset and um, managing the team through uh, challenging times so I know that there was uh, some really positive feedback on that again thank you very much for taking time out to listen to these podcasts but also if you're making the um, the effort to engage a beyond the podcast it kind of means a lot so thank you very much for that this episode um, has probably out of all the episodes that I've ever recorded with um, or interviewed somebody this was probably one of the most fun Um, certainly one of the most interesting it's been cut down to about an hour but all in myself and Hugh Gilmore we're talking for about three hours maybe three and a half hours and you could probably made two and a half really good podcasts and one absolutely awful one um, but that's another story so I've known Hugh for, for quite some time Hugh's a, um, uh, currently given psychology support to British weightlifting and athletics um, he's sports psychologist his CV is really good reading because I'm reading a CV now and I can tell you that factually it's a really um, he's uh, qualified in sport and exercise science from Ulster University, he's got a master's with distinction for applied sports psychology, and he's got another qualification from the University of Derby in, in psychology, um, along with a whole bunch of accreditations. But he has got a um, a track record in offering uh, psychology insights to um, British weightlifting um, and British athletics, and like having him on on the. Um, it's a real, real honour to have him on because, and, and I hope you get as much enjoyment out of the next hour as I did talking to the lad. Um, we had a really wide-ranging conversation and it was all based around me having heard him on another podcast where he was talking about these methodologies and these models that he uses in sport can be easily applied to business. Now, there's a lot of strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats associated to that whole idea. But to get him talking about it was it's very refreshing to see that perspective from a guy who has helped reshape the culture of a sporting organization in a kind of a in the middle of a sporting body where culture has been under scrutiny for a whole bunch of different reasons, most of them negative. And Hugh's kind of carrying this bright torch in the middle of it all. We talked about culture, um Brilliant, some really, really uh, interesting analogies about the uh, difference between traditions and, and culture. So typically traditions would be 
unchangeable. They're kind of written in stone. We have our own Irish traditions, Native American traditions, um, indigenous, uh, Aboriginal, so on and so forth. Um, yet culture, something that we talk about a lot in business and sport, should always be in a state of flux and be um, almost embracing change. Um, we talk about uh, that law of impermanence. You know, everybody aspires to reach Everest, you know, as an example that Hugh use, uses, but ultimately your time on Everest is very limited. So in sport and in business and in sales, your time as a peak performer is ultimately limited because nothing lasts forever and someone or something or indeed self-inflicted change will help knock you off that perch. Um, he has introduced me to um, uh, an area called motivational interviewing, which is really, really interesting. Um, it's, you know, um, it's, it's widely used in criminal justice education and sport. And it's, a, it's a, I think the, the, the way I look at it is that it's, it's kind of a, a coaching tool. Um, he comes out with some brilliant lines, like really, really standout, uh, very memorable sentences. And one of them being that um, about um, a coaching or a management style of telling, you know, and why mo- motivational interviewing is really, really um, beneficial because you encourage people to to review themselves and to talk about themselves so they come from the answers inside them themselves. But the idea that nobody really does what you tell them to do. And if they do, it's under duress. And, and the idea that we have got in business um, or they're still prevails in business, this idea that you can tell people what to do, something of which I'd have been probably very guilty of myself. But anyway, without further ado, um, I'm really delighted to introduce you to what I've felt has been one of the most fun and interesting podcasts that I've ever been involved with. So I want to thank Hugh Gilmore for that. And um, I really hope you enjoy it. Any feedback will be again most welcome. So here we go. Hugh, thanks very much for for joining me on on the podcast. Um, Good to get talking to you, man. Um, How are you doing? I'm doing good. Uh, things are wonderful, I suppose, uh, at the moment. Um, still surviving despite uh, 2020 drawing to an end. So I'm hoping to make it to the last of the Hunger Games of 2020. Good man, good man. Lockborough is a good place to be to be doing that from. That's the hotbed of sport, and um, certainly was whenever I was going to university. It was if you were interested in sport in any way, shape, or form, you'd have wanted to try and plant your flag in, in Lockborough. Is it still the hotbed? Yeah, I mean, at the last Olympics, they reckoned Loughborough would have came, uh, I think, eighth in the global medal table because of the amount of medalists around this area that are either studying there, living there, or training there uh, on campus. So it's still very much uh, a world leader in the development of elite athletes. Uh, That's where I've obviously been working in the last um, maybe five, six years now, maybe even seven years. So, yeah. So we, we, we first um, kind of crossed swords in um, Sagerson days with Queens. And um, that was, uh, that for me at the time would have been as high performance or elite level GAA, probably one step down from county. Some counties maybe one step above county, given the finance and the preparation that they go through. You're you're um, at the other end of the spectrum. You're this is proper elite high performance. You're you're specialising in now British weightlifting and athletics. Do you want to give us a bit more of a background on that? 
Yeah, so my role is essentially providing psychology support to athletes and the system uh, around uh, British weightlifting for the last five, six years and uh, recently in the last three years and with British athletics for their pathway in terms of development of elite performers and within the last two years, uh, British athletics' is, uh, high-performance world-class program for their Olympians and Paralympians. So essentially, it's looking at the best in the UK and saying they're not good enough and how do we make them better uh, or finding areas of improvement. Um, so in a sense, and, and I do that from the lens of psychology, you know, they've obviously got other uh, staff around them, or the system, nutrition, uh, S&C, that sort of thing. So it's a high-performance team supporting these athletes to essentially find weaknesses and improve. Um, and also in terms of the team processes, one of the things that I've achieved with in powerlifting is creating a very successful culture that you know has been identified as standing out head and shoulders above other cultures and again it's something i've been part of because you know i don't create a culture uh the organization creates it um you know and that's something important to remember that it's a contribution to it because it's impossible for one person one manager one psychologist to do do a culture it's a, a team thing and that, and that was um, that's really what prompted me to get in touch with you after all that time because I'd heard you on another podcast um, talking about um, these disciplines uh, when applied to sport, um, how easily they could be transferred into the boardroom or into a business. And some of the work that I do, I, I would unashamedly use a lot of sporting examples um, when I'm working with sales teams or sales individuals or CEOs or business owners to try and improve performance. It's all about, for me, it's performance improvement. And not always are you working with high-performing uh, businesses. Not always are you working with low-performing. It's about performance improvement. But you had said that um, all the stuff that you're doing, all the stuff, like all, the, the, these methodologies and these practices that you are deploying in weightlifting athletics, you could take straight into business um so maybe just start about why your culture within your area is so good what what defines that what why is it is it would you say it stands out above everybody else well i suppose i'm saying that because that's what we've been told um and i think what's interesting is how we view culture is it's not something that you it's not something that you essentially create and then it's there we respect it as it's a process that is always in flux and always been pulled. So like, for example, if you look at traditions, the term traditions, those are things that don't change. You know, traditions remain the same for thousands of years, but cultures always involve, evolve. And then what it is, is we've elicited uh, what is our culture and, and how we want our culture to be and identified it. And then realize that, you know, this is a thing that's in flux. So we are responsible for how it fluxes uh, and identified areas of responsibility. So it's an ongoing process. And again, we started it um, because of discussion around divorce. And uh, you can think of this in the sense of if you've got a staff member or if you've got a customer, you always should realize as a manager that, you know, that relationship could end in divorce in that a very uh, hostile and, and uh, 
non-agreeable one where the employee ends up leaving and bad-mouthing you or the customer ends up leaving and bad-mouthing you. And I think that's the view that we took of our sport is like we do things and we put athletes uh, in a position to help them perform and it's a high-pressure environment. But actually we don't want to have somebody leave our environment and take one bad story away from it and that destroy all the good work and so we realized that we have to realize you know have to think about like who are these people how do we create a culture that you know minimizes the risk of a bad divorce because one thing's for certain you come into a high performance system and you leave a high performance system you don't stay there you know you can't stay at the top of Everest the same way you can't stay at the top of your sporting field for life so you have to leave and on what terms they leave and what's been their experience of our culture um so how do we create a culture that at the very worst when they leave it's an amicable divorce um and I think that's about respecting people and how you want to conduct your business but then also the other aspect of that is how do we use our culture to increase performance so one of the things that we did was we brought them in, realizing this was a, a project that would take a few years, uh, and we showed them a pair of chopsticks because obviously the the next Olympics was going to be in Tokyo, and we're like, you know, people look at chopsticks as culture, we look at knife and fork, and we don't see culture, but that is our culture, and it's kind of like the analogy of the fish swimming by the other fish and saying, oh, what's water, or how's the water today, and you don't get to know that you're in water until you're out of water. You don't get to know that you're in your culture until uh, you're out of it. And actually, something I take from you uh, that has been a really good analogy, and, and you used it, and correct, correct me if I get it wrong here, is like people don't realize that their culture is there, and it can essentially have developed like trees growing through an old house, and you've got these big rigid trees growing through an old house, and because you haven't you know, seen what's been growing where, you haven't kept on top of things, and next thing you know, You've got this big tree culture in through what is a house and that may be for better or worse. So culture happens, it occurs, and if you're not paying attention to it, then it will develop itself uh, naturally and you will not be, uh, you know, what's the word, able to shape that or aware of where that might be actually working against your business. Um, yeah, so that's that was the start of it, of how we introduced the idea that we needed to work on it and... The big thing that I would put across to people in doing that is creating what I call uh, discrepancy or what is called discrepancy, which is a term from motivational interviewing of creating the difference between a point A and a point B. And the best way to do this is ask an open question and have all answers acceptable. So I can tell you about that more if you want, but I'm sure I've, I've just ranted a bit. So is there anything you want clarity on there? No, you haven't. That's good. Like so, the the the. So let me try and frame some of the uh, say objections, but the discussions that I would have in culture and business. Some people think that it's a it's a box a, tick, a box ticking exercise, and there's no doubt about that. And I'm sure that's the same for for organisations like yourselves. Some people think it's a destination, and then some other people get that it's a continuum that it is ever evolving. Okay, um, you, you have a um achieved something really good there and you have tapped into what's in the organization so you asked for feedback and collaborative feedback from everybody in the organization so everybody's perspective was really relevant so it wasn't 
you made it, you made it, and I'm saying it, I'm asking the question rather than making the statement. Did, did you make um, it clear that no, no opinion is more valid than the other? You know, that's a big question because I don't know if that's possible to do. Uh, I think some opinions are more valuable, va- valuable than others because we have to, like we all place judgment on opinions that we hear. Um, but I think what is necessary at the start is that you hear everyone's opinion. Um, and like uh, the process of actually asking every athlete, look, how do we deal with uh, this scenario uh, like we we put like an empty chair in the room and, and said you know imagine we have brought in a new member to our team they're going to exp- have to understand our culture the new member finds out that they're not happy with uh how the coaching process is going how would you what's the culture what's the way that we would want things to be in that scenario and then we let the athletes solve that because they're at the coal face and like, well, you know, they're new, but they should be able to speak up and say, look, I'm not happy with the coaching process. I would prefer X over Y. Um, they would say that, you know, also you can go and speak to other athletes and that we as other athletes then have a responsibility to help that athlete speak up and, and you know, give that feedback of how they would like things to be for them. So it's a case of like, there's two ways you know, at least to solve every problem. Um and it's like we can empower that person to speak up and solve that problem or we can empower the team to support that person to speak up or we can empower the team to speak up for that person. Um, so, again, asking their opinions of how they solve a problem like that. But similarly, you know, even just uh, somebody starting on our program, what do would you want them to know uh, or what would it be the most beneficial things? And you might find that actually what somebody's answers are are not performance related they might be coping related as to how you cope in a high pressure environment and if i think of times when i've worked in businesses with seals um you know you learn hacks of how you can like get a breather get a bit of a a longer time on your lunch break or whatever it is uh if you're in a call center that type of thing you learn hacks and every business knows where people take uh i suppose extra rest and you would have to ask yourself like is that productive Okay, they're not using time on the phone or they're not using the time wisely in the interactions, but maybe that coping and that getting an extra breather enhances their performance over the, the day. So again, open questions like that with problems that you face, asking for their solutions at the coal face and then identifying what, what is a good way to solve that solution and also what is a way that we don't want people to solve that that problem. Um those open questions will allow you to understand what culture exists and what direction people want to move in. I think if you, if you were, if you respect, were take, sorry, go ahead. If you were taking somebody in like uh, a new, a new uh, member of the team, their opinion would be just as valid as somebody who's been there for five years or 10 years. You know, it's interesting. I think if you're building a culture, it has to be. Um, I think there's this idea that we get some values, we stick them in a wall, and then it's done. And actually, that's not culture. That's a, you know, that's a piece of business art. Um, it's it's actually a case of this person's coming on into our team. How do we integrate them? And uh, what do they need to know? But also, what can we learn from them? 
And how do we get them to buy into our culture in a sense of like, how can they co-create it? What can they actually challenge? Because if you come into an organization, here's something, which culture is the worst culture in the entire planet? I don't want to be xenophobic about it, but, you know, I highlighted that Japan, you know, with the chopsticks, but very simply, you can identify areas of Japanese culture, which are actually bad. Uh, the same way you can identify areas of Irish culture, British culture, American, you know, I don't I pick a culture. It has a good element. It has a bad element. Um, so having somebody come in from outside is actually an opportunity for you to see, like, where are the bad elements of your culture and what's the, the sort of bottom end of it? So I suppose if I, I rationalize this in, in how we did our culture approach, we have a very much taken a, a stoic, let's have responsibility, uh, or let's let our athletes have responsibility approach. And a great way to do this is walk into a room and it might be a, a room full of all your, your people that you manage and say, right, write down everything that you blame people for in this organization. Who's to blame? Write down all the things we have that are problems that are someone else's fault. Get Be nice and open about it. Um, obviously, there's hopefully not too much vindictiveness. And then draw a line down the other side of this big uh, flip chart page and then go, right, now what's your responsibility with that problem? Because if somebody's you know making, say, for example, uh, off-color racist comment, it's also somebody's responsibility to challenge that. So you have a responsibility um, to act in a way that changes the culture. So I think there's a big issue with some organizations where it's all about blame and nobody actually goes, well, what's your responsibility in a situation of blame? And creating, again, that discrepancy between these are the bad areas and what's the blame, then what's your responsibility, orientates people towards a way of thinking about a problem where there's change can happen um but yeah so i was going back to like how is our culture but sorry go ahead and I, I i didn't mean to cut in there i just it was a logical question i felt that did you find that um people stepped up to that responsibility were they did they all want to step up into that responsibility i mean that's the thing it, it takes everybody to start talking about it and using the processes which you can come to uh you know, where they sh show and take responsibility. So at opportunities, once you've agreed what the culture is and how to take responsibility, it's then a case of going, right, okay, how do we take responsibility for this? How do you take responsibility for your problem? But also how do I take responsibility for the problem? And talking in that language. Um, the, the point I was going to make about, you know, all cultures have a, a downside. Like our culture is heavily weighted towards like a stoic approach of this responsibility. What's the downside to that? is that if you take a heavily stoic approach of I am responsible for everything in this organization, uh, we know that from the research that people who take that stoic approach don't ask for help as much. So then we had to identify like the bottom side of our culture is maybe people don't ask for help. And then how do we like do a piece around that? And what does asking for help look like when it goes well? And when, when do I need to ask for help? And how do I ensure other people are asking for help? So like for every... For every direction you move in, you're also forgetting something. And I think it's like no action is perfect. There's always a, a, a dark side to your action. I think being aware of that is a way to create a healthy culture, if you know what I mean. So, yeah. So I, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Or No, it's, it's um, that like, yeah, it does indeed. Like, I mean, the one thing for me and in, in, um, working in, so, so the work that I do is kind of about performance improvement. 
Um, and I'd love to tell you that everybody I work with is high performance and I'd love to tell you the work that I do all the time is high performance, but that's not really the, the truth of it. Um, there is, you have to start, there's a starting point that you have to benchmark. You have to say, okay, this is where we're at here and this is what we aspire to. And this is what we've done before. And then this is where we'd like to go to. And that's that kind of, um, just being a little bit better than you were yesterday is high performance for me. The definition that, um, yeah, it isn't about definitions. It's about it's about uh, being aware of where you are, kind of being um, determined and having a sense of vision to say this is where we want to go, and then within that, trying to find out what you need to do to make all that happen. And it's very, very evident that it's not the responsibility of one person. It can't be the vision of just one person. There needs to be a collaborative thing. There has to be a buy-in. There has to be a sense of consensus that, yeah, fucking I'm on this bus. I enjoy it. Like, I'm happy to take this ride. But there also is very much a sense of responsibility that everybody needs to stand up and kind of do their thing. You know, it's not just about the guys who are... are the 80-20 rule or, or the Duran truth or whatever you want to say, like then 90% of the business comes from four or five of your customers and 80% of your work effort comes from, um, you know, two or three people. There's, a, there's a, also a little bit of a dichotomy where you're kind of thinking this is high, high performance individuals, but also a high level of teamship across the entire collective. And that means they have to be responsible to themselves and to that singular vision. Yeah, I mean, even that, again, that sounds, you know, it sounds spot on. And then you think of, like, what are the problems that people encounter within that? Uh, and I know you've mentioned this before, but, like, the Dunbar number of 150 people, like, that actually goes a bit further in the sense that, you know, you can only really have a high-level trust for about five people, like, very high-level, unconditional trust for about five people. And... It's funny, that's what, how many people are generally in uh, emergency teams or crisis teams. Um, or they're, you know, it's a small number because the bigger the group, the less connected the network and therefore the lower performance. And then if you think about it, like you can only have like a, a nearly high level trust of maybe uh, 15 people that you can have a little bit lower trust. And actually that's, a, you know, more of a, like we're a bit of a team here and there's going to be some dynamics there. So, like, if you think about that, that's why business structures organize in systems of ten. You know, you, you only you only really should be managing about you know somewhere between eight and eight and twelve people, um, because any more than that, and it gets a bit um, too dynamic uh, in terms of the interpersonal relationships. But you know, too little, and then do they actually need a manager? They could probably function themselves if they're a group of five, and, and function independently nearly. Uh, and again you go back to Dunbar's number you think of an organization with 500 500 uh employees you don't have a culture in that organization you have pockets of culture and it's how do you actually identify where's the culture you need to change what's the small group where you can make a change how do you create a success there and then how do you actually move from the different pockets to create different pockets of culture where it needs to change in different areas of the business so i mean culture is different as soon as you get outside 150 people, uh, like I know like people from Toronto are very funny, no offense, but, but it's like people from Toronto are different <laughs> from people from down, you know? Um, and it, again, within the, within our identities, we have different cultures that we fit into and slot into. Um, 
you know, so I suppose my, my question is like, what are you building a culture around? What identity are you building a culture around uh, within an organization? And how does the team size affect how you do that? Good considerations to have before making any change. There's, there's no doubt, man. And like, I, I would have, uh, that's really interesting. Well, interesting apart from the Tyrone Down um, comparison. <laughs> uh, so I, I would have used a, a kind of a, a tongue-in-cheek example about you only need six people to carry your coffin. Unless you're very small, you only need four in terms of that circle of trust, you know. Um, and I think that, that that's going to bring with it some serious challenges for the young kids who are in social media right now who are trying to appeal to everybody and trying to please everybody but pleasing nobody. You just should really be pleasing yourself. That's another thing. The like the, the benchmarking is really important. Like you've just thrown in a whole load of different dynamics there that 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 uh, bring in different conversation threads. So one of them would be, for example, that I, I use I i I've I've worked for enterprise size businesses, top top fifty Northern Ireland, top 50 Ireland, big, big companies and small companies and fledgling companies and all that sort of stuff. And there's not really one size to fit all. So I, I would be working in a, the largest sales team I would work in front of would be maybe 27 people mm-hmm. uh, currently. And the 27 people, um, I would talk to them and I use Starbucks as an example. And Starbucks coffee is awful. For those people who like coffee, everything that Starbucks do is almost counterintuitive to thinking that that's what represents a really successful. But they're, they're successful. But you go into every Starbucks and there's some find now about their formula. It's very tired. Everything's formulaic, actually. It's very tired. And they're trying to change all that. But what they did succeed in was harnessing a collective vision across maybe 125,000 or 130,000 people globally. So if you went into Starbucks in San Francisco or you went into Starbucks in London or you went into Starbucks in Moscow or uh, Mumbai or whatever it was, you'd walk in and a person would be, would be dressed in a green T-shirt. They would smile. And if you asked for a coffee, they would try and upsell you a scone. Four or five stage process. Be welcome, be genuine, be involved and be something else. There's a five, five ways of being the Starbucks have. So I would use this and I would say, like, and I, I'm trying to shortcut, you know, because I've only got so a limited amount of time with these people. I'm not there on the roster of coaches that are there to coach them forever. I'm in to do some kind of sharp shock treatment, occasionally brought back in again to do a sense check and a barometer and all that. So I've got to use one example, and I would use Starbucks and say, if Starbucks can behave like that across 130 people, how is it that you 27 people can't come in wearing the same T-shirts today? Now, that's very cosmetic. But but the idea mm. and the principle is still kind of the same, right? Because the underlying uh, thing is that we're in t-shirts and coming into office on time are your cultural values in action, right? They're not what you know. Mm. One of your culture, one of your values, shouldn't be dress impeccably. It, it shouldn't be, you know, because it's a ridiculous thing to enforce on a micromanagement level. The culture underlying that should be you've got the responsibility to dress accordingly lads no you should know what you have to do does that make sense mm. so i'm i'm talking these these different these really 27 people is not a, it's not a, it's not a, a hard group to, to manage but organizations there are organizations where there are loads of people where they tend to get it right you know but i never thought about that number you're talking about sense yeah i mean it's like it's like anything the bigger the organization the harder it is um to maintain 
communication and ethos throughout it. In fact, I think within business terms is a, a thing called the greenier growth curve. I'm sure you're probably familiar with that, but it goes through like the stages of how businesses feel. Like I know about this because I look at it and go like, that's how sport feels as well. You know, as you grow, there is risk to your growth. And again, it's not about, it's not about, you know, always being scared of, of progress, but actually sometimes you have to, you should always be asking the question. So as a general principle, all right, consider yourself as the problem and consider that your removal might solve the problem. And that's a very humbling place to be because me going in and saying, right, lads, you know, why don't we all wear the same shirt and this isn't good enough? Well, I've created a, a culture of judgment. I've put myself as in charge and, you know, I could be making the problem worse. And actually, there's a really important thing that people need to be aware of called psychological reactance, which is basically last time you went for a curry, the waiter came in, he sat down the, the hot plate that they put all the dishes on. He says, don't touch that. What'd you do? What did you do last time you had a curry? I know I, you're laughing. I know what you did. You touched it, you know, because you're like, he told me that's hot. He told me not to touch it. So I need to touch it because the only way for me to be free and express my own autonomy is to do the opposite of what I'm dictated to. So that's kind of interesting in the sense that from a behavior change point of view, it's much better to go in, right? Guys, we've all come in. We all look different. Is there anything we could do better and see what's suggested from the group? You know, ask the questions yeah, that so vote the answers. That's back to motivational interviewing, yeah. So it's like ask the things that cause the change or cause people to become aware of things and see do they want to change and what the barriers are as opposed to telling them how to change. You know, you can't tell anybody anything because if telling worked, you know, well, if telling worked, there wouldn't be a problem in the world because we'd all be told what to do all the time. You'd be told don't speed. You'd be told, you know, don't overeat. You'd be told, uh, don't get too drunk at the weekend. You'd be told, you know, and that would be it done. Telling doesn't work. But what does work is actually asking the right questions, which is a skill that needs practiced, and how to ask those questions in a way that doesn't land judgmentally. Um, and again, that's part of like how, how I went about building culture is taking a motivational interviewing techniques and applying them in a group setting. So that's an individual therapy that can be applied in a group setting to elicit the change that you might want to come about with. So that's, um, again, we had touched on it somewhere before in a conversation earlier was the difference between teaching, mentoring, and coaching. And the coaching mm -hmm. is very, very aligned to motivational interviewing because you're trying to, as you said, elicit the right answer well, no, I think, again, the first thing you're trying to do is, is elicit awareness from the people you're talking to so that they're aware that this is where we are right now. And, um, you know, how, how, do you, how does that sit with you that we're here and what do you think we're doing right and wrong? Um, and then you're trying to get them to understand that, get them to take responsibility as well in the thinking and then the action. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I mean... You can tell, I mean, and it, it goes, it's interesting because like if you think about it, it sounds like a lot of work, but actually it's not a lot of work if it gets the right results once. You don't want to be telling, you don't want to be solving the same problem your entire career. 
Solve it once and solve it right. Develop the skill, execute the skill, elicit the solution from the employees and solve it once and for all. And that's worth a lot more than actually solving it um you know, every every quarter you go back to the same problems. We need to increase X because you know that's not good enough. Um, and I think that's that's part about how you solve a problem well. Yeah, but and, and with that, you're looking at um, the, the the you know the if you if you focus on this outcome, this big vision that you have is to be the best in your territory or to improve sales or to grow margin or whatever it might be. And you have to measure the process to get there. But somewhere down the line, you have to be in a position to be able to pivot if that way of thinking doesn't work. So it's the dictatorial thing, the telling, which I have to, and I, I'm happy to put my hand up here. And I wish to Christ that I put my hand up earlier in this is that, that having worked in certain businesses, I came in with the mindset of the business and the culture that I had worked in and thought that that would work everywhere else. That was a dictatorial way of doing it. Like, that would have been a real twat, um, uh, the way I would have brought that across because I left no room for for a responsibility. It was like, it was extreme mentoring. If you can imagine speed dating, this was mentoring, right? Just fuck, do it that way and then sure it'll work and do it this way and it'll work because I've got evidence over here that that's worked and that's worked and that's worked. Yeah. And the, the place that, that I, I might have worked in one really, really high-performing uh sales role out of all my entire life and that was for that was the Everest moment that that was the five years and then I had to move on and we had everything going in our favor from economic climate from a the platform so the business had been well established it was a mature business the, it was its peak in the industry it was its peak within the peak in the industry I got uh, involved in a team where it, the, the, everything was there and I for a long period of my time afterwards assumed that this is you can replicate this you know you can just take it everything and move it somewhere else but you actually it's like the idea that legacy was going to work for the Armagh seconds or for you know the Khalif junior team read legacy lads start cleaning out the sheds and I'll see you back here Monday yeah you, you have know, to give again this is an interesting thing because you know people look at uh, these stories of performance, and you look you've looked at your experience of performance, and look let's let's you know not beat about the bush here. You're talking about mistakes that you've made. You don't get to a point of being decent without making big mistakes and learning from it. The fact that you've learned from it says more about you than the the situation where you're trying to transpond or transplant a culture into another operation you know that's very honest but like how many people are that actually honest about the mistakes made me and, and brought me closer to what i did what, what is good so like the interesting thing and the great analogy of this is you were sat in a place that was essentially making bread and you thought here's the ingredients of bread i need to throw those ingredients into a cupboard and then out comes bread and it's actually there was processes there's a temperature of the environment. There's all the different chemical things around making bread and even just the interaction of the hands and stuff to do it and how you apply heat. There's so much to it. It's not just about the ingredients. It's about the context, the process, what's gone before it. Um, to actually make the bread rise, you know. And you can't just take five ingredients and, and whack them together. 
somebody who's a baker probably realizes that I don't know how to make bread here right now with this analogy. But the the thing Why is, like, you can't just add. <laughs> You can't just add ingredients and expect bread to happen. There's a lot more to it than, you know, just taking that and sticking it into another organization. You have to respect the environment that that organization has and, and start where it's at, you know. So I, this this is very relevant to, to the story that I've continually interrupted that you've been trying to tell um, about what you've done um, and how you've con- uh, transformed that culture because there are so many fixed, you know, just like the, the bread making analogy, there are fixeds. You know, you want to you want to make bread. These are the ingredients, but all the variables of temperature and that. Like, um, can you pull, can you talk about that in a bit more detail about what those variables might have been? Yeah. So, I mean, like I was saying, we, like we wanted a culture that was both high performance but also low risk in terms of like how do we lose people and what's the divorce out of our system because everyone has to leave the system once they're not good enough um and that's just the fact of you know natural arc of their performance um you can't stay at the top forever we we think of it as it's like everest you know you can get to the top of everest but you can't live there um so the process we went through was very mindful in that you know you very often take the problems that you have and implant a culture that will solve your problems. And that means that your culture becomes deficit based. You essentially create a a culture around your problems and not a culture around what high performance is. So if I go and I speak to a coach and I I say like, what do they need to do? They'll say they need to do this, this, they can identify the problem. And it's the problem is they need to stop doing that, but actually stop doing something or start doing something isn't necessarily the high performance of X. It's just something that contributes to it negatively, you know? So define what the the high performance is by creating discrepancy, by asking open questions and go like, you know, how do we induct somebody? What do they need to know? How do we, uh, how do we deal with an employee who's not happy with our processes? How do we uh, give performance feedback what is what is high performance seen as in our system? Like in my system, it's can you put another kilogram on the bar next time? Uh, in a business system, and and again, that's a very quantitative environment. But so is a business system. How many seals? But we also sit and break down what's the quality of that kilogram that you put in the bar. Does it look like dog crap when you do it, or does it look good? So how do you assess the quality of of your your KPIs? And I think then that's another big thing within business is like, like what is your, what does quality look, what does a quality seal look like? Does it look like the money in the bank or does it look like a repeat customer or does it look like somebody who's a super spreader and is going to spread the word of how good an interaction they had uh, and get you another 10 customers? So, you know, how do you create a quality seal versus just a figure? Um, and again, you start asking people about that and you'll find they all have different views because it's very easy to focus on the, the quantitative approach of we got X and actually that is, uh, you know, that quantitative approach is a bias that we have because we love certainty and a number is a certainty, a quality and discussing the quality of a seal is openly with open questions. I think nobody likes that because we all have different views on what a quality seal looks like. Um, what are your views on that? I mean, you, you know, I'm sure you've come across different types of way of selling. Like, how would you identify a quality seal or a quality process within a business? 
it's really um, a nice that's a nice segue because I, I was just thinking about that as you as you'd spoken about qualitative quantitative and there's um so so sales at some point is all about the results for a business however the business is run sales is a very very uh, KPI engine to the performance of the overall organization no matter what it is selling coffee or selling software or selling uh, construction services whatever it is you're judged very easily about um, we pitched for this we won that it delivered this uh, that was the profitability does that look like success the benchmark is always last year or your competition or how the market has shrunk or how the market has um, uh, your position in the market and so on and so forth so it's very easy in a sales context to become numbers focused only and you can look at the, the quantitative side of it and you know I saw the examples about football, like the, the, the you know, God, the performance was ugly, but at least we got the two points. It's that kind of example, right? We we got the three points. And in in the role of a sales manager and the role of a salesperson, and we talked about this. If you're in if you're in sales for yourself, it's really only about the money. And if you're in an organization that's in lifetime value, long term customer relationships, it is about the quality of the sale. It's about not being. Uh, ruthlessly fettered to this spreadsheet, CRM activities. Um, activity equals results is true, but it's the right kind of activity that delivers the right kind of results. Well, what does that right activity look like? What, what what is what does good look like? You know, you hear people saying that have come out of sales training, and they'll say, "So, what does good look like?" And you're going, "Yeah, it's funny, and it's a ridiculously dated thing to say, but actually, what does a good sale look like?" How does the other person feel? So you're bringing in these variables, these intangibles. How does how did the customer feel whenever you left the room? Is it was it a win-win? Genuinely, did they, did you leave something in the middle for everybody so that you didn't rip them off or they didn't feel ripped off? Which is more important? Um, what is the lifetime value of that relationship? Is it you're selling something for ten grand now, but over the next twenty years that that could um, mushroom into two million? Um, is it a, a, a is the person got the propensity and the ability to become viral on your relationship and tell loads of other people and and you know do do some really positive behind the scenes selling that you would never be able to do by yourself and I think there's again you're creating a culture whereby that level of performance needs to be culture based you can't have one or two people wanting to behave like it needs to be the entire organization moving towards that because selling is only one part of the customer relationship. Selling value delivery, value creation, then value delivery, and then repeat. So if you don't get it right the first time, there's no repeat. And that's a cultural thing. Yeah. And it's interesting. Like you've just given a very uh detailed overview of, of selling and use terms that you know that aren't familiar to me because i'm not in that industry but like if you think who is your salesperson you know it's most likely somebody you get in off the street at 23 25 whatever it is potentially in some organizations and they don't have that understanding of what a quality sale is and you're going to go and try and tell them that and we've already said that tell them doesn't work but if you go and ask them, like, what do you think a quality sale is and hear their answer, that will tell you what they are aiming for. Yeah. And then if you ask, you ask everybody in a group, what's a quality sale? Then 
you get all their opinions out, then you find there's different opinions of what a quality sale is. And it might be that, you know, a quality sale is whenever you bang out, you know, it, uh, again, from my experience, it used to be like if you got three seals, you could go home in one of the industries I worked in. And it's like a quality seal is me getting home early. That's what I cared about. Not, you know, so in those days I brought my A game. Now that's, that's short-term motivation and there's nothing wrong with that because it works. But at the same time, is that actually creating the customer relationship that that company wanted from me? Probably not because I was pulling out all the tricks to get all uh, the potential for a sale. So the the way I would approach that is like you need to have the conversation, non-judgmental and honest one of what does a good sale look, look like to you? What's your opinion of that? Ask them a month after they've started, what does a good sale look like now? Ask them five years after they've started, what does a good sale look like now? And then how did they come to that change in that process? That'll tell you, I mean, a great thing uh, I've heard is systems produce, systems are designed to produce what they produce. So if you get shit sales, it's because your system is shit because the people in it are doing shit. Um, And it's a case of actually, right, we are producing this. How do we produce the opposite of that? and what needs to change and making people aware of that. I suppose the other thing I think you've hit on as well before in previous conversations with you is the idea of nested goals. It's like Johnny who wants to get off work early and get a bonus um, needs to realize that him doing that plays into the success of the company achieving their their targets. So how does his job relate to his team's performance and how does his team's performance relate to the company's target and it's not you telling him that it's you asking the questions that allow him to understand that you know and that then starts to see how they can get a better understanding of their role and and perform their role better i mean even though we're an individual sport our funding depends on how successful how we can evidence that we will be more likely to be successful in the future which is you know kind of like business in the sense that you need to be able to evidence how you're going to be successful for your customers, uh, both now and in the future. Um, there is a there is a need for you to understand: Are your processes good at producing it? Or are you just having a good day? Because you can't build a company in good days. You need obviously good processes, and that occurs when you understand the quantities and the qualities. It's something I'll throw in. Yeah. I, I know, I've got a penchant for ranting here, but uh, one of the things that one of the things that I, I, I like to uh, always bring up is how do you define the undefinable of the quality? And it's very simple. We talk about it in terms of psychobehavioral uh, abilities. So if I want to define commitment, your definition is different from my definition, but we both agree that we like this word commitment and we want that. Sticking commitment up on a wall doesn't mean shit, right? Sticking yeah. our definition of commitment does, and our definition needs to be, Something we can observe and see, because then it's an action. Something that's promotable, so not something that's done in secret that we can't talk about. Something that's promotable, because then it'll spread. And then something that's not deficit-based. So if I say to you, right, look, see when you get sales, I think the term is slamming. Is that right? You can slam a sale where you're like, so I've, I've, I've heard the term, like, you know, essentially say, look, if, if you don't call, call us back, then we'll assume this is okay, and we'll go ahead and put this ad in. And then... You, you know you'll finish up in that run the advert or whatever and then 
you'll invoice the person like we didn't agree to this and like, no you didn't come back to me i think the tail the term's called slamming and it's a process that people will maybe do when they're leaving a company to try and get more sales before they leave um okay i, I know somebody who this has been done on, done on and it was described as that um i'm gonna have to put it the point cast man because that kind of practice would not be <laughs> like no. it, it is done sure it's done surely man yeah it's um a yeah like so just hold hold that thought even for a second you know so so you said advertising i my my uh, my my sense is that because i worked in advertising that you've got these industries that have because it's a race to figures they have destroyed businesses have destroyed industries single-handedly destroyed industries based on individual and collective behavior advertising is one of them Double glazing is another one. Recruitment uh, agencies is another one where it's mm-hmm. just get them get them to sign on the line which is dotted at all costs and you fuck it. And that's not about lifetime value, short-termism. So that's like basically, um, I don't, I'm trying to think of a comparison in, in your sport is win this derby or win this game at any cost and it doesn't matter what happens after or next week or the week after. You know, yeah. there's always medium long-term consequence you know it's interesting because like we we do have a win at all costs mentality on the big competition like when it comes to the olympics or paralympics and and if you're in the final you know you put down what you put down to the best of your ability and then it's over you know that might be your retirement after that or you've got four years to get fixed again um and that's fine to have that but i don't see how you can win on a single day in business business is about longevity uh you know there isn't a company in the world that is over 300 years old so you think but how is your company and i've actually used this analogy um within like sporting success like if i wanted a small ga club to win in all ireland right could i do it this year no but if i say to everybody in the parish how could we get our club is it possible to get our club to win an All-Ireland in 100 years? Well, yes, it would be possible. There's a, We can set out a plan of all the different actions that we could do uh, to, to get us in a position in 100 years' time that that is a possibility. And then you would ask, what are those actions? And it turns out it's building a community, uh, keeping people interested, you know, building relationships, developing expertise that can be passed on from generation to generation in the sport. You know, and then you start going like, well, that's the exact same in business. You know, how would you be the most successful business in a hundred years' time? You know, thinking that way is well outside of of most people's capacity because they've never thought of a thousand year or a hundred year time frame. But actually, when they do it, it raises yeah. big things of, of how they behave. Um, yeah. So I want to go back to something there I said about the def- I said about defining a, a deficit behavior. Uh, not def- when you want to define a behavior it needs to be promotable observable and not deficit based and i made the point about slamming sales or whatever so what people would say is oh well, you don't do that well highlighting what you don't do doesn't tell you what you need to do and that's why you need to define it in a, in a helpful non-deficit based way of explicitly stating these are our behaviors we will see them you will see them we can promote them we know when you're doing them and they're they're actually telling us what to do as opposed to what not to do. Um, and you think of a word like commitment. What does commitment look like to your sales team? And don't the manager shouldn't define that. 
elicit, evoke the, the definition from your sales team, not from your your you don't you go and put your definition on them, elicit from them from them, and that's a surprisingly hard process. It takes skill to not be judgmental, and like you might have to claw back some relationships, you know, where you've been focused on uh, just getting results and not actually helping people become an elite performer. That's you know you play the long game with people. And I think that's that can't be understated enough. No, I think that's um, really, 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 really valuable. Like there's a there's a song that comes into my head there where it's the line, one of the lines is um, like something along the lines of "It's better don't be running away from something, run towards something." So if you're if you're motivated to do something based on the fact I want to leave this, I don't like it. It's it's really really a journey destined for failure. Whereas if you're moving towards something because you see it as beneficial to you, then your sense of purpose is driven in the positive, which is ultimately the same as you saying about your staff accepting responsibility rather than the blame culture. Whereas things always fuck up in this place rather than, okay, things always mess up, but you know what? I can fix that. And and, and that, that mentality is this, this collective that, that for me under underlines the, the idea of team, where where people well, I, a guy once called the teamship. He said that this is the hybrid of teamwork and leadership, where you're working together as a team, but everybody has got leadership qualities and authority to make decisions, and it isn't just the hierarchy that 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 is very prevalent in the organisation. You know, I, before we like, like whenever I knew we were going to be talking, you, I took a look at um, Sport UK, and. Um, I'd mentioned to you very briefly when we were chatting last night about the, the stuff that they talk about. Um, so the, the way they redefined culture, it was the culture as articulated. So uh, what's openly stated and kind of uh, aimed for by leaders. So the leaders have got a view in their head. Then culture as experience, which is the day-to-day behaviors. And then deep culture, which is the culture you want against the culture that exists. So you're talking about point A and point B. So this is where you are. Um, this is where we as an organization believe we could and should be moving towards. And then almost filling in the blanks by creating a process to deliver on that. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because like very, very quickly we can set a big goal in the future. And like no, nobody's asking the question of what is the smallest thing we can do to achieve the, uh, a little bit of sex success towards that. And, I think within performance environments, sales environments, uh, you know, it'll be like you need to do X, and X is a big effort. And what I know from my, my training in psychology is that I'm not going to help somebody set a goal unless they are eight out of ten confident they can achieve it. So the goal has to be easily achievable. Because if I set a goal that's like five, five out of ten, so I say, like, how, how confident are you that you can achieve this? And they say five or seven out of ten. That's the wrong goal. Because all I'm doing is setting up an opportunity for them to work towards failure. And what we know is that success is the biggest builder of confidence. Success is the biggest predictor of more success. So if I set a goal with an 8 out of 10 confident, or even better, 10 out of 10 confident, chances are they'll achieve that goal, and then we can move another step closer. And it's those small steps build the big long-term goal that you know people want. And But it's it's too keen to make a big change and not keen enough to go slow at it and go like, Look, you tell me what can you do that you're 100% confident of, of contributing towards this 
don't tell me anything you can't deliver on and just deliver on what you can you're in a real position of power there because that means something's going to happen and it means things are going to get better and certainty is a, is a priceless commodity in business yeah dude, like that that's that's um a really valuable comment to focus on there so the like i'm normally or people like me like a some kind of cons- i call myself a sales coach or a sales mentor or trainer or whatever is required and you're brought in and you're speaking to the md or the head of sales the head of hr the first thing they say is we have a problem right so it's never like we're looking at the next five years, Paul, what do you think would be the best way to move our team forward in the direction? And it's like, we've got a problem here. I've got a couple of lads and a couple of girls who aren't performing well. We want that to change. Um, we're looking to restructure the team. Everything's about an immediacy, right? It's like, we have a problem. So if the problem is like a tree growing through the house, fucking tree didn't grow overnight. That's been going on for ages. And now you want the boy to come in to maybe fix the cracks in the floor and cut that tree out. So yeah. you're coming in from a position of reactivity, uh, you're very defensive language is always very defensive because they don't see a five-year plan because that means the first thing they're thinking of geez we'll have this lad mac and allen here for five years that's not going to work that's going to be really expensive so the cost of doing against the cost of not doing is not thought about it's like that's prohibitive the second thing would be is that um there's the fault is not one of it's, it's, it's again holding up the mirror and the fingers pointed towards the sales team the sales team aren't doing it or the sales manager is not leading the sales team, or the sales director is not managing the sales manager to manage the sales team. So there's no none of this responsibility narrative that you've been talking about very, very like the emotional uh, or the motivational uh, question. And it's like, we need to fix this dictatorial. So you come in and you're given a very short window of trying to affect change. The, ex- the example that I always use, it's a bit like if you've got a heart problem on the football field and they throw the defibrillator at you, the person doesn't follow you for the rest of their lives with a defibrillator, just in case it happens again. You change behaviors, you change attitude, you change circumstance, you change the variables, you change all the stuff you can affect change with. And the big problem that, that I, I get is that they don't have time. It has to be done for this year, end of the quarter. There's a couple of businesses that I'm working with and they've been really refreshing because they say, we know we can't change this overnight. How long do you think it's going to take? And they're sitting down and uh, if you're creating a sales strategy, it needs to be anchored down on the right kind of cultural environment. So that's why a conversation like this is really, really important, you know, um, and it's kind of relevant and very timely that you can over here, you talk about changing culture and you talk about what is required to do that. And then over here, you've got this vision of what improved performance looks like. And then you look at um, how, how, to, how to move very slowly towards a common goal rather than just focus, mm-hmm. focusing on this big 20% growth. I had introduced the idea of, it's not new to me, other people would do it in a different way, but I talk about David Brailsford and Sky, you know, and the, the theory of marginal gains and improving small stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but as you were talking there, I find myself very guilty of trying to get people to analyze their performance and they'll say, I, because they think it's what I want to hear. So they'll say, no, I'm 80% convinced I can do this. But mm-hmm. the bravado bullshit that is attached to sales performance means that it's just set another value for them and they don't achieve it and they're set back even further. Yeah. So you can't you know, win and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because like, I, I, even I have a friend um, and his 
wife works in sales within uh, the medical industry and you know she's hit her targets and been rewarded handsomely with her bonuses but he was also talking about some of the attitudes with her and her colleagues and it was nearly as if the targets always increase they always expect to get better and it's kind of like as if there's no no limit to how high these targets can get and that's an interesting thing because in sport we know there is like there is a human potential limit and our job is to get close to that and like when if you continually increase your targets to the point where they're no longer reachable within sales for example all you've done is moved them out of their reach and demotivated them and because you've set the targets then actually you're you're actually making a situation where you're demotivating them you're disempowering them whereas if they set the targets uh and they base the targets on certainty you know can you imagine walking in to the boardroom and going like we are uh certain of this number that has a lot more emphasis in long-term planning if that number is you know you're at 80 percent, 90 percent confidence in that number as opposed to look we have this number between this number and we're 70 percent certain of something in between that like how much yeah. more better would your business be at that confidence at the board level it would be brilliant if you were working in bernie saunders economy it would work uh, i i totally hear you man because i've been i've never worked in a business where year on year there's been a decrease in targets in my entire life never Never, not one chance. And there's a whole lot of reasons for that. Um, very, very occasionally you will go and you do a forecast for next year, 2021 to 2023, and you're, you're speaking to a whole lot of stakeholders. You'll speak to your salespeople. You'll speak to some customers that you've got deep water with. You'll speak to competitors. You'll look at market. You'll do a whole lot of analysis, and then you put your finger up in the air, and you'll do a plus 10% in last year. Yeah, And, and everybody's involved. Because we spoke to you, and you, you like I, they may, may remember uh, working in, at, the, at that high performance level in London, and guy coming to me, and he was sitting down and with his clipboard, and he going, "So, Paul, tell me, how do you think you're going to grow across these <clears throat> areas that are important to our business? So, yield, volume, revenue, new customers, acquisition, churn rate, and all that." And I'd be going, oh, "God, they really value my opinion." And so I put in put mm-hmm. a good couple of shifts. They'll tell me all this stuff about, oh, you know, the importance of forecasting. It's always, uh, it's better to forecast low than high. And all this stuff that you were getting like really confused about and you put two or three days hard work into it and they'll come back and they'll deliver a fait accompli the next week anyway. And they'll say, oh, well, we spoke to everybody and this is what, because the guys in the boardroom are motivated by different things than on the sales floor. Yeah. Because the guys in the boardroom yeah. have got greater risk and reward going on and not everybody is working for the common vision. So these businesses that say they're totally working for the common vision are really hard to find because a lot of the businesses in Northern Ireland have been set up or inherited by families. And the last thing a son is going to do, going to increase or reduce figures that his father worked his ass off for 50 years to deliver. So the pressure that is cascading down in a business environment where I don't know what the percentage is, 150,000 SMEs in Northern Ireland. So there's a lot of small micro businesses that have been set up mm. by people who they craft. They know how to make guitars, so they're going to sell guitars. So they know how to they they know what good beer looks like, so they're going to set up a microbrewery, all that sort of stuff. They got to go to a bank manager uh, for funding, and the bank manager says, "Let me see your five year plan." And you start off by saying, "Well, I got some good news. First two years are going to be upward curve. 
The next three or four are going to be downward, but it's going to be really nice downward revenue. <laughs> the bank manager will say, I'll give you money for me. And you come back to me after that. So so the, it's complex, but but mm. it isn't complex. You need a culture that is representative of something that meaningful. There has to be a sense of common purpose for any successful business. You all have to be at least 99.9% pointed in the one direction. You have to. You can't have like the call center mentality that you've alluded to. Biggest challenge for me is to try and get somebody who's worked in a call center to try and sell properly. Yeah, It's really, really hard because they've got these ingrained behaviors that they think is right and they've, they've, they were making 140 calls a day and I'm going to do that. I don't want you to make 440 calls a day. I want you to make 10 really fucking excellent calls a day. Yeah. So you might have to spend 80% of your time searching and preparing and, you know, revising how you, the structure of your call and so on and so forth. And something again that, that I'm guilty of you is that I use a lot of high performance sport examples talking to performing sales teams. Okay. And one of the things that a salesperson doesn't have the benefit of is they don't have benefit of recovery time, which is with the benefit of hyper salespeople. They don't have the benefit of nutritionists and sports psychs and all these guys coming in to, to do X, Y, and Z. And they have a very, very singular purpose that they'll train in the context of the All-Ireland. You'll have periodization that should begin in November and for most teams will peter out at, at, in August. Okay, so you've got this periodization. So you're working towards different milestones in performance across the year to get to the point where you're really going flat out. Salespeople are asked to come in on a Monday and work their balls off from Monday morning. Yeah. 90% of the You know, that, that's, again, that's interesting, you know, because, you know, you don't get to all Ireland without having passed through uh, a development process. And you think of it, you go in day one sales, you make you make uh, your few calls, you get trained up in your systems and whatever else. Um, but what's the development process? Because if I look at developing expertise in the sports that I work in, it takes 10 years um, for you to get one shot at a gold medal. That's what it takes minimum. Um, you know, we can do it shorter at times, but you're talking, you know, 10-year sports whenever it's something like sprinting or something like uh, strength, uh, speed or strength sports, you know. Now, let's uh, let's say you've got somebody who's got a real talent and you get them in your team. That's fine. But do they actually get any better or do they get worse over time? Uh, similarly, like, how do you actually think of somebody as you take them in? In five years, what are they, what are they going to be doing differently that it's going to make them better? It's not about just that number getting better. Talk to me about the process of what they need to learn, how they need to function, how do they need to view view the problems they deal with, uh, and how does that mature over the five years with your company? Because if you say, oh, yeah, well, they're going to get more sales and they're going to grow by 10% every year in their ability to get sales, articulate how, and then go back to your, your rest of your sales floor and say, okay, how have you got better over five years? Who has got better and how did they get better? I mean, that's that's the big thing that's always lacking is everyone's happy to talk numbers. Nobody's happy to talk how. Um, and again, the how is that process. I think now if I think about like psychology and, and performance, reflective practice is known as a very useful skill in 
fields where there is no clear set way of performing. So, for example, if I'm going to perform a world record uh, surgery as a surgeon and there's never been done before, nobody can tell me how to do it. It's not like bricklaying where it's like procedural of put down the cement, put down the brick, put down another one, stick to the plan. It's explorative and that's where reflective practice comes in. And you can think of sales as something that has to be world leading because you you know what you're selling? You're selling an idea to another human. And that's one of the most complex things that, you know, we started out this podcast and we had to stop after, you know, a couple of minutes and do a restart because we, we messed up the start. And we spoke for two hours about what we were going to talk about and different ideas uh, and yet we made a mistake and that's because an interaction between two humans is massively complex so reflective practice and sales allows us to understand our process and maybe what better looks like and a, a good thing that i do with coaches to facilitate that is start off with like three things what went well and this is a process i'll, I'll talk through with coaches what's going well and the reason i do that is because very easily first thing we do is we see the things that went badly and if I ask people what went well, it actually highlights the positives, which allows them to have confidence. If they've got confidence, then they can change behavior. If they don't have confidence and don't have that assurance of things, if some things have gone well, then they don't have the confidence to change. They're just in a state of threat. And then you'll move on to, right, okay, what actually occurred? What happened? Ask them for their understanding of it. And then ask them, right, okay, well, what changes could you make? And then you ask them, well, what would be the positives of that change? But also, what would be the negatives of that change? There is no action on this planet that has all positive outcomes. If I set a world record, what that means is all my previous attempts are now not as good, and I'm expected to go higher again in the next competition. So me setting a world record, or any athlete getting setting a world record, diminishes prior performance, increases expectation in the future. And you, people will look at world records and thinking that's a great thing, but it has massive downsides. So everything, if you everything, everything, the- everything like this, this another thing that sales people or business owners want me to do with sales teams and speaking to sales directors is to inject positivity. And I'm going, man, no, 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 I can't, I can't like that's that's really, really. It's, there's a duality in this, like it's night and day, black and white, good and bad, positive and negative. And if you don't embrace both of them with the same love then you're just going to be chasing this uh, bullshit. Every day is going to be bad because you can't live up to that false expectation of what positive looks like. And when you're talking to salespeople about that, it's like the oscillations of a day, never mind a year, where good call, you make 40 calls, rejection, 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 uh, faint hope and glimmer of some guy calling you back, rejection, 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 rejection. You can't think that that's going to be like that forever. So you have to think on the context of, okay, this just is what it is. That stoicism you talked about, it's like, okay, this is part of the job. And whilst all of this negativity surrounds my work at the minute, I know behind the negativity there is something good about to happen. And as you talk about, the big sale is not a life changer. You get in a hundred grand sale or get a deal over the line and you look at it and you think like, a, that's not going to last forever. That's your Everest moment. You're now going to have to come down from that and you're going to have to go again tomorrow. So you have to be always very mindful about the law of impermanence. Like nothing lasts forever. Mm-hmm. Good doesn't last forever. The bad doesn't last forever. You just have to find a way of dealing with that. Dude, I'm going to have to pull a, a, 
pull this to a halt here because a the time spent on it we're probably just a little bit over the hour and um i know we could go on for a fair bit here um but i would like to get you get back on to, to talk about some things that we have discussed that we weren't planning to discuss you know yeah well yeah i mean if you want to wrap it up that's fine uh, and we can uh, talk again another time so uh, i can't believe the time's slowing already so yeah that's fine I'd um to do it again man i'd like to i'd like to um be really specific on um three or four things i'd like to maybe get get back to talk about the um motivational questioning in greater detail mm-hmm. which, which the parallels with coaching which i think the benefits of that will be seen by business owners and business leaders about how to improve performance of individuals and teams by employing that 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 kind of uh mechanism or device or modality or whatever and then i'd like to get into a high performance i'd like to talk specifically about high performance um in the context of what you're doing if that's okay but i want to say thank you for for your time this morning uh, the stuff that people won't hear the chat we had beforehand thank you thanks for allowing me to restart the podcast and thanks for um your contribution here man that's been brilliant really enjoyed it how can people get touch you if you want to if you want to encourage that do you encourage that do you want people to speak to you about uh, would you coach people individually uh, in sport um can you talk so uh, I am I am quite busy and don't have capacity um, for uh, much work. So I'm very selective, unfortunately, and, and that's that's going to be the way it is up until Tokyo. Um, however, one of the things that I will be uh, actually looking to do post October, maybe when things settle down with COVID, is actually start hosting. Uh, courses in motivational interviewing and how that can be applied to different areas so i mean that's something that i I already do for some organizations on a one-off you know i've educated snc coaches how to do this but uh you know because they're actually having to interact with people who are having to try and push harder and those skills are, are really important there so if they want to get in touch with me about learning more about motivational interviewing by all means do so and just contact me at podium psychology at gmail or on twitter uh hugh j gilmore uh on twitter um uh and yeah you can you can find me um but like i say i am very busy but i do do the occasional workshop or two-day workshops and courses and that and probably will pick up those again after covid settled down about after october um so maybe start of 2020 uh, 2021 um, but thanks very much Paul for having me on I'm more than happy to come on again and look the other thing is I'm sure maybe some people are sat here going like that was good but we didn't spend enough time talking about x y or z so I'd encourage people to get in touch with you and ask maybe if there's questions that one answered specifically um, to throw those questions into you and maybe we could do a follow-up episode more so on answering people's curiosities as well as what you've mentioned already but it's always a pleasure to, to reconnect and uh uh, great to see you again likewise man i appreciate it i know you're i know you're flat out and i wish you all the very best with everything that, that you're involved with at the minute and um a yeah we'll 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 get back in touch again but man thank you very much for for your contribution that's been very interesting appreciate it and and 
And just to throw one plug in, if you are interested in maybe learning more about sports psychology, um, I do run a podcast with uh, Dr. Pete Olashoga, um, and it's called 80% Mental. Um, and that's just launched in the last, uh, well, this week, actually. So we're actually interviewing, you know, experts in different fields and putting together a kind of a how-to guide through a podcast uh, on sports psychology for people interested in performance, coaching, that type of thing. So that might be of interest to you. Um, but yeah, that would be the only other place I would send people to speak to me about. I will I will plug that flat out for you because um, I'll be keen to listen to that as well, man. So um, I'll, all of this will be in the pro notes and on my website and on my uh, social media channels as well. So um, we'll get the word out for definite.